Welcome to Closing the Digital Divide, the podcast dedicated to creating meaningful conversations and share valuable insights from industry leaders, policymakers, equipment manufacturers, and others on closing the digital divide. I'm your host, Charles Thomas, and together we'll explore the policies, challenges, triumphs, and innovative solutions that are reshaping the digital landscape. Join us as we shine a light on the importance of equal access, digital literacy, and the transformative impact technology can have on our unserved and underserved communities. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered as we work towards closing the digital divide, one episode at a time. Welcome to the conversations that shape in our future. This is Closing the Digital Divide. Today, I believe we have a very informative and thought-provoking conversation with my guests. I am pleased to welcome to Closing the Digital Divide, Mr. Corey Hauer, Chief Executive Officer of GigFire. Corey, welcome to the show. Charles, thank you for having me. I look forward to a thoughtful discussion. Great, great. Me too. Corey, as I always do for my first guest to come on the show, I always ask the question of them, what is the digital divide and why is it so important to have it closed? Well, I I like to think of it in terms of what happened in the 1930s. Uh, My ancestors grew up in Northeast Iowa and they were farmers and rural electrification uh, was as impactful an event that hit uh, rural America, as, as I could imagine, in the last century. And it really changed the, the scope of what farming meant. Farming meant prior to rural electrification that the sun went down and you quit working. Um, <laughs> and if the sun wasn't up, you probably weren't able to work, except maybe milk the cows by candlelight. But it, it, it was transformative. And, and you know, for, for decades prior to rural electrification, um, the cities were really the only beneficiaries of uh, the, the, the enablement of electric power. And when the U.S. really made a, a, a decision as a country to put forth the effort and the funds to do rural electrification, it was a sea change event. And, and Charles, I think that broadband in the U.S. is, is pretty clearly the rural electrification event. Like we're, we're gonna decide as a, as a country, as a nation, that broadband is important enough that we need to solve it and, and not have it be a perennial, um, well, you know, life's great here, but I don't have broadband. I, I think that's a, that's a solution that needs to be one and done. We need to be completed with that. And uh, I, I think, you know, I don't run into too many people that say that um, that shouldn't be a priority for the nation. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Having lived and worked in rural areas and and literally grown up where we had our uh, facility on the outside and we had to run out. And I agree with you. Uh, When the sun went down, work was over. So um, this leads us right into this major program that's about to be released, the BEEF program. There's been several initiatives uh, prior to uh, this major program coming out, um, one in particular that uh, we want to talk about is the the ODOF program and how its impact on um, uh, on beads. Um, I kind of look at ODOF as a um, as, as we shared a little bit earlier as, as a more of a purpose 
driven um, program as and and beads is kind of out there a little bit. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about? And I know you guys were were intimately involved with the the Adolf process. Can you talk to us a little bit first about what Adolf was, and and how its potential impact will be on the bead program? Yeah, and, and it, we're very passionate about um, the the utilization of ratepayer funds to to sort of solve this divide issue between rural areas and cities. And you know, I, I give a lot of credit to the FCC as an entity because I think they recognize that largely universal service, um, which had been focused historically on landline availability so you could get a phone line in in your home in a rural area uh, largely due to universal service fund uh, subsidies that were granted to uh, telephone companies and mm -hmm. i think the fcc correctly recognized that that's pretty much a solved issue you know if you want a phone line you can probably get it um and and right. uh, in, in increasingly mobile phones are something that work almost everywhere as well and and maybe landlines are something people don't really care about at scale anymore and so the fcc you know has this universal service fund they collect funds into it and they made a decision to reallocate those funds and and sort of target broadband unavailability and and i think that was brilliant um uh the uh, concept of sort of Robin Hood capitalism, if you will, taking money from people in big cities to fund people in, in rural areas. You know, some people aren't really aligned with that, uh, but I, I think we've done that as a country a, a bunch of times, including mm -hmm. for rural electric service, and it's worked out. So you, you can sort of, you know, put a pin in that political uh, discussion. But the FCC did it, and uh, they, they're a pretty experienced group, um, and they decided the best way. And, and the most efficient way to utilize ratepayer funds was to uh, have a reverse auction. And you know, if you look at the history of universal service, you know, you could make pretty strong arguments that there's been some mismanagement um, and uh, inadequate uh, supervision of funds, or maybe just bad results. Let's just zoom out and say mm -hmm. that for billions and billions of dollars uh, expended uh, to universal service funds entities. The ratepayers didn't get a whole lot of broadband in, in a lot of areas. And, and so I think that the FCC, when they took a view of what they were going to do to reallocate those funds and to utilize reverse auction as the method um, for deploying those funds, I, th I think it was quite smart. And I'll, I'll talk about reverse auctions because a lot of people don't understand what that is. And so just maybe it'll take a minute. follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a hard concept, right? Because you go to an auction, you bid on an item, and somebody outbids you, and maybe you lose that item, and and you know you kind of have to decide where you're comfortable bidding to. Well, the way the reverse auction works, and in particular how it worked with Ardoff, is the FCC started with sort of a pretty high reserve price, and conceptually they said, hey, we're going to give you X dollars to build broadband to this set of locations and the set of locations, you know, the, their, their reserve price uh, was high, but the auction continued to get lower in each round. And, and basically it continued until everybody dropped out. Um, and then there was a winner in, in that area. Um, 
one concept that people probably don't realize is there were two tiers of broadband service uh, that were bid. There was a 100 by 20 tier um, and a gigabit by 500 tier. And there's some other tiers, but they weren't meaningful in the auction. Those are the only two tiers that matter. And mm -hmm. the way the auction worked uh, for the FCC is they wanted gig by 500 and they, they literally said it in the auction rules that they were constructing the auction to favor entities that were willing to bid at the gig by 500 tier. And so if two bidders showed up at the quote, quote, clearing round where the, where the budget of the FCC was met um, and there was one that was bidding hundred by 20 and one that was bidding gigabit by 500, they eliminated any bidder that was bidding 100 by 20. So the, they mm. were no longer participating in the, the auction. And then the auction continued, assuming there was more than one entity willing to provide gigabit by 500 to further and lower rounds. So effectively, mm -hmm. the rate payers get a pretty good deal, right? And in fact, I think if, if you look at the RDOF auction, um, there are some areas that uh, I, I know that charter in Tennessee bid down to 1% in some areas. And, you know, that's not a whole lot of subsidy. Um, and and right. so pretty clearly people were interested in sort of keeping competitors out more than they were actually seeking the government subsidy, which I think is a great result, to be honest, because, you know, the, the accomplishment of having these areas uh, with an obligee that's, that's required to build them is, is a great thing for, for the ratepayer that's not uh, currently served by broadband. But I, I think it's not widely known, at least our entity, uh, LTD Broadband, when we bid, we won all over half of our award on the first day of the so-called so real auction. In other words, the auction after the reserve price was met, because we mm -hmm. were the only entity willing to do gigabit by 500. And so that that basically was an award round uh, for any entity that was the only remaining bidder willing to do gigabit by 500. Mm -hmm. And so that there, there's a substantial number of awardees. We're not the only one, certainly, that was the only entity willing to do that. But you know, that that that's something I think is wide not widely understood that that. Um, a lot of entities won because they, they were the only one remaining, last man standing, if you will, at the at the clearing round. Um, the other thing too, is, and obviously there's two entities that the FCC took took a pretty notable swipe at, and and our colleagues at Starlink were the other one, uh, and they won a substantial amount in Ardoff as well. And uh, for the most part, if you look at their awards, they were also the only willing bidder. To, to commit to doing 100 by 20 service. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting because six months ago, you know, there were a lot of, and in fact, the FCC posted stuff saying, well, Starlink can't do 100 by 20. Uh, and, and they couldn't at that time, uh, but that's not their obligation. Mm -hmm. Their obligation was to do it by the end of year three. And in fact, they're already doing it. I, I, I'm a Starlink subscriber uh, at a location in Minnesota and we test it and, and they meet it. They're in, and I always thought they could meet it, um, which which sort mm -hmm. of gives me a lot more pause along uh, the lines of the FCC's rejection and sort of their violating their own rules, I guess, um, uh, to reject Starlink. Um, and that, at least that's my take. And that's the 
the take that Starlink uh, has published in their uh, application for reconsideration. So I kind of see maybe possible two inherent issues there um, with the reverse auction. And there's been a debate on, on both sides of this. Um, one, um, it could eliminate some, some, some folks that are possibly doing work. Like I said, it takes, you know, they have up to three years to, to, to reach that, um, that threshold. And two, um, you know, if we if we bid down too far, then uh, it kind of makes it not a good business plan to actually do the work or or actually you know build a project in in some of these areas, um, and and that could be an impact on getting these people uh, the people that need it need the service uh, built in those areas. Um, yeah, but what, what's, your, what's your take on that? Am, am I way off base or, or is that reality? Well, I, I think it's a fair question, Charles. And you know, it's interesting, uh, part of the subtext of why the FCC went down the road of Ardoff um, was sort of the answer to the joke, you know, what's the definition of crazy, you know, doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Well, in this case, you know, I, I think it would be crazy to assume that shoveling more money at the usual suspects, in this case, the large ILEX, mm -hmm. would magically result in uh, availability of broadband. I mean, you, you hear people talk and make the criticism, and I think it's well-placed that if you look at the amount of money that's been thrown at the ILEX, over the years, they could have built five full fiber networks for the US. Right. And I think that's you know pretty concretely true. Um, I, I think you touched on a, an interesting point, Charles, and and you know, there's a there's a big spectrum of what is considered the cost of building fiber. And and there's different approaches, mm -hmm. and you know, everybody's got an opinion. And in fact, I'll sort of rewind and put talk from my own shoes. If you would have talked to me five years ago, I, I believed the industry thesis that fiber is this really expensive, super hard thing to build. And you got to be a special entity to figure out how to do fiber. And, and unless you're among the anointed, you know, fiberati, like you're not going to be able to do it. And, you know, as a management team and as a company, you know, we really looked at um, whether that was true or not. Is there somebody behind the green curtain that perhaps uh, maybe is hoodwinking a, a few parties? And mm -hmm. uh, over the last five years, we found that to be largely true, um, that there, there's a lot of sort of misinformation isn't the right word, but um, different viewpoints on how fiber and broadband networks can be constructed. And you know, that, you know, can I drive a Toyota Celica? Yes. Can I drive a Rolls Royce? Yes. They'll both get me down the road. Um, I think that you can have a reasoned conversation about if you're going to subsidize cars for low income people, should everybody get a Rolls Royce? And, and maybe that's a bad analogy, but I think that mm -hmm. there's definitely different approaches. And I'll, I'll, I'll relate it to us, to Gigfire. We're building 500 
fiber passings a week right now. Last week we built 500, the week before we built 500. That's a really fast cadence. You know, you multiply that up to a year, that's a quarter million passings in a year. And and some of our, I guess I'll call them disgruntled competitors, um, like to say, oh, it can't be done. You know, you can't build fiber at scale at low cost. Um, you know, we know because we've been in the business for decades. And, you know, I think that you can you can make a parallel analysis and look at Elon Musk and, and the, mm-hmm. the big three automakers really looked at uh, electric cars and said, you know, we've really looked at electric cars and, you know, we can't figure the batteries. Out. We just don't think they're going to work like it's just a money pit like electric cars are never going to happen. And, and sometimes it takes an Elon to say, you know, let's really figure it out. Maybe we need to make our own batteries. And it turns out that was the unlock, right? Like he, he figured out how to make batteries and, and uh, in partnership with Panasonic, they, they uh, were able to sort of do what Detroit said was impossible. And now Detroit's building lots of electric cars as well. And so it, right. copying and pasting the same ideas is maybe not always the right answer. Maybe you need somebody to start with a clean sheet of paper. And, and, and you know, I, we're not, I'm not sitting here saying we're the only company doing that. I think there's a lot of, innovation in the fiber space. You look at companies like Metronet, Zipli, Allo, they're, they're building low cost fiber at scale in relatively rural areas. There, there's dozens and dozens of other companies that I know um, that you can't, I'm not gonna list here that are similarly innovating and building fiber. And so I realized Charles that he gave you a long answer to that question, but I think I, I understand that the the, if you're going to equivalent, make it equivalent to the big three in this conversation, I understand mm-hmm. that there's incumbents that sort of want to say it can't be done. And, and maybe with their methods, they're correct. I, I think they're right. And there's certainly ways to spend tons of money to build fiber networks. But I think there's pretty concrete evidence to the, to the contrary. I, th- I think that it's not just us. There's tons of people building fiber at fast pace and at low cost. And, and I think to say it's impossible is disingenuous. It's provably disingenuous. Sure. And, and I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I'm, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit um, because I want to talk a little bit about um, the political um, impact. I had uh, Blair uh, Levine on, on a, a earlier podcast, and we really got into the political will um, to get this program right. Um, in your opinion, what do you feel the political will or the political impact on, on the VEED program is going to be? And, and do you believe that we do have the political will to get this right? Charles, that's that's a great question, and I, 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 unfortunately, I'm I'm a little bit of a negative Nelly on this topic. I, I think that mm-hmm. uh, you know, regardless of party, um, broadband has been used a little bit like Lucy on and the football. Um, you know, if you if you vote for me next cycle, we'll get broadband fixed, and if you vote for me the next three cycles, we'll really really get it fixed. And you know, I I've looked at different state programs and. You know, they're biting off, you know, 1% of the um, unserved area every year. And, 
you know, I, I, I worry because I think the bead program is sort of the opposite of Ardoff. Um, Ardoff mm -hmm. really said, these are the specific geographies. These houses can't get broadband. And I think that, you know, Chairwoman Rosenworcel was rightly critical of incorrect mapping when Ardoff happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the first things she did as chairwoman is fix that, right? Like she made uh, accurate mapping a priority of the FCC uh, under her leadership. And, and I, I applaud the chairwoman. I think it's a fantastic allocation of resources. I think we have to start with an accurate map. Um, I think the, the criticism of her predecessor was probably not as well placed because I think we already proved that we could fix it after the fact and, and she has. Uh, but I think the, the, mm -hmm. the, cherry on the Sunday of Ardoff was that we actually had a map and we could go attack that map. This, this is the problem. And in fact, I think in DC, this is a relatively unique thing because we actually really carefully defined the problem. And we said, we're going to solve this exact problem. And I think that's laudable, regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on. I, I think it should be a great goal. And, and, by contrast, Bede doesn't have anything to do with that. Like Bede is just saying, oh, there's a bunch of areas and we hope people participate and try to solve them. And most of the participants in, in the Bede program are for-profit businesses and many of them are publicly traded. And, and they all have fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to do the best uh, application of their capital. And, and so because of that, it's very unlikely that most of the quote, quote, hard to build areas are going to be subject to bead building. I just think it's very unlikely. And so, you know, the, the, it, at least in the case of LTD and, and Starlink, the FCC's focus on burning those awards to the ground, I think is extremely negative for the people that live in the geographic footprints um, mm -hmm. that, that should be getting, you know, we, we should have built, tens many tens of thousands of locations in fiber already but for the fcc burning um our application to the ground alongside with starlink's application you know it it just it, it worries me that we're going to be here for a long time not not just two years but five years and maybe 10 years we're going to have these unserved areas um be, because of sort of political decisions that they're there needed to be this repudiation of the prior regime's uh, program. And I, I think those are dangerous waters to tread on. Um, and, but oh, the, the, it appears that is today's DC is the first thing you do is burn down everything your predecessors did. So I want to talk a, a little bit about, about the mapping here. And, and you brought that up and, and it was a daunting task. Um, just this week, the FCC released new the new map. Um, do in your opinion, and, and you've been doing this for a while, a long time. In your opinion, do we have enough information currently in in the new map release to adequately address the areas of unserved and underserved? Or do you believe we're going to have to go through additional revisions of the map to make sure that we get those people served? 
so I have a, I have a, um, a, a strong take on, on this. I think that the map is certainly an evolving uh, um, set of data and it's probably the best thing <laughs> that um, I've seen sure. in terms of helping figure out where the trouble points are for broadband. And, you know, none of us as industry participants wanted this. My company didn't want to telegraph our punches to our competitors and basically show sure. everybody where we have service and where we don't. And, and I think that some entities really didn't want the accountability, you know, the, of household level data, which in my view is the only way to go. Like if you can't say this house can be served and this house cannot, then I think that, that we're not there yet, but we are there. I think the the broadband map that the FCC has developed is exactly the solution we need. We need household level data on what is available where you know I'll, i'm going to be contrarian for a moment charles i'm going to say something that sure. probably isn't popular in the space um elon musk in my view has largely solved the broadband fire that's been happening to the country if you want to say the fields are on fire or the city is on fire or wh whatever your analogy i think that starlink has put out that fire largely if i want to build a cabin in the middle of nowhere montana and, and I wanna drill a well, and I wanna uh, put up some solar panels and live 100% off grid, I can do so with extraordinarily great broadband. And so I think that the, mm -hmm. the sort of fire drill that started a lot of this broadband funding um, importance and urgency probably is a lot less important now. And, I, and you know, this, I'm speaking as somebody that's in the industry and maybe potentially looking for uh, funding dollars to help accomplish broadband product projects. And, and in that regard, if, if I had my druthers, I would say kill all broadband funding. It probably doesn't make sense anymore. Um, there's, hmm. there's probably better uses of funds uh, because of that. And you could make an argument that Starlink's expensive, but you know, the US uh, um, has had lots of mechanisms for putting thumbs on scale with regard to price. So if you're low income, we can put a thumb on that scale and we can make that $110 service a $50 service. And I think that probably would be a great use of ratepayer funds. I don't want to go too down far down the, the well on that or the rabbit hole, but I, I, it's a contrary opinion. It's one that I hold. I, I think that the lar largely Starlink has put out the big fire. Um, if you want to make mm -hmm. the argument that eventually we need fiber, I think you can have a reasoned discussion about that. I, I think that gigabit service, generally speaking, is neat and it's a great capability. Um, our company, GigFire, the name, it indicates that we're focused on delivering gig service. Uh, we're relatively technology agnostic though, because we're delivering gigabit symmetrical service, not just on fiber, but now in 2023, we're doing gig symmetrical using fixed wireless. And so, we're very agnostic as to technology. You know, I think it's pretty clear in my view that Starlink also is going to join the gig symmetrical club at some point. They'll be able to do it. That mm -hmm. it, it, it seems very likely that we'll be competing with Starlink in every address in the in the U.S. that we serve uh, at some point. And, you know, that's an interesting mechanism for controlling costs. I mean, cell phones used to be $80, $90 a month. There's a number of carriers today that you can sign up for for $15 a month or $25 a month. Right. And, and so a lot of market forces have driven um, 
pricing to be more affordable. And I, and I predict that that will happen in broadband as well. And I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the, the, the fixed um, community. Um, and I, I kind of look at the fixed community as, as more of a, of a um, uh, competitor with, with Starlink. Surely um, Starlink has, I, I believe, has, has some advantages in there. As you mentioned, you can, you can build a, a, a cabin out in the middle of Montana and, and immediately have adequate service, uh, broadband service there. Um, how do you... In your opinion, how do you see the, the, the fixed wireless community fitting into the overall broadband ecosystem? Well, I, I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a competitive uh, marketplace. And we're already seeing that, you know, it, it, between T-Mobile and Verizon, those companies alone have signed up millions of people for fixed, their fixed wireless service. And that's that's huge. And, and I, I think that, you know, if you read the um, transcripts from some of the quarterly uh, reporting done by the publicly traded cable companies, it's impacting their business in substantial ways. And, you mm -hmm. know, I would argue from the consumer's perspective, that's great. Like competition is great. And in fact, you know, our company over the last uh, call it year has certainly lost some customers to Starlink. And, and we think now with the advent of gigabit symmetric service, we're going to get, get a lot of them, if not all of those back. Like the, the consumer is in a great spot, right? Because they get to vote with their wallet. Uh, right. And, you know, the, the government, you know, can, can sort of put thumbs on the scale wherever they want and to affect availability and maybe sometimes to affect price. I would argue that probably the government should keep their nose out of the price thumb uh, business. Um, with the, with the exception of people that are low income, I think that's a, a laudable sure, sure. Uh, place for governments to participate. But in terms of trying to tell carriers how to price their service, I think Mr. Market is is really adequate at determining how uh, consumers pay for and what they're willing to pay for uh, broadband service. But I, I think that, and, you know, I'll, I'll make a somewhat bold prediction here. I think gigabit fixed wireless is going to be a pretty big component of uh, what people choose for broadband and, and Starlink, you know, great service. Amazing. You can get it almost anywhere on the planet. It's going to be a huge unlock for, for not just the U.S., but for the planet uh, in terms of where broadband can be available. And, and uh, I think it's great. But competitively, we think, you know, it's caused us to sharpen our sword, you know, a year ago. We were selling 100 meg uh, consumer packages, and now we're selling gigabit consumer packages. And I, I think that you know we're we're not doing that in a vacuum. Starlink influenced our focus on uh, bringing uh, and, and low cost uh, consumer packages. We're doing gigabit for seventy dollars, and that that I think wow. you know again we're not operating in a vacuum there. We we want to be a value offering. We think that we're going to have a bigger pie to sell to. We, we're growing the pie by making the price lower. And so the number of available consumers that are willing to pay $70 a month for gig, in, in our view, is bigger than the number that's willing to pay $110 or $120. And we, we have some competitors in our footprint that, you know, they're federally funded or universal service funded phone companies that are charging $250 a month for gigabit. And you know they're 
they're a for-profit business or, or maybe I guess they're not. They're cooperatives in some cases, but, and they can do what they want. The government doesn't regulate what they charge, sure. but I would argue that the marketplace is going to regulate what they charge because they're going to have to compete with us with, with a $70 gigabit offering. And I, I think that is going to influence what other participants in the market do vis-a-vis their customers. Yeah, and I think the marketplace is is a uh, great driver for that. And, you know, in the end, we want the uh, the subscribers, the, the the people in those in those areas to be the winner. Right. And and uh, I'm a I'm a firm believer of allowing the marketplace to drive uh, the prices, regardless if you're subsidized or not. Um, we are almost out of time. Uh, this has been uh, informative. It's been uh, great information. Uh, you're, you're certainly um, someone who I'd like to come back and have another conversation with um, as we get closer to, to beads and, and actually, um, you know, once the, the allocations and, and the projects have begun. Um, we want to talk about how, how you guys are, are proceeding and um, I just think that'd be a, a great follow-up conversation after after this one. Um, Corey, uh, take a minute and and tell folks about uh, where Gigfire is, uh, some communications, how they can get in touch with you guys, and uh, where your expansion plans are going. Yeah, and this has been a great conversation, Charles, and I really appreciate your your reaching out to me, and and uh, definitely will take you up on the offer of a, a follow up conversation because I think, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of story told yet uh, yes. with regard to the broadband deployment, and in, in, in particular in the rural U.S. Um, Gigfire uh, is largely focused in the Midwest. Uh, we operate uh, in Minnesota, Iowa. Uh, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, uh, Missouri. Uh, very soon we're going to operate in Illinois. I guess I'm a, letting a cat out of the bag in this interview, but we'll be in Illinois soon. Uh, and we also uh, have operations in Tennessee. Um, the best way to reach us is our website, uh, gigfire.com. Uh, we, we talk on the phone, we chat, we, however you want to reach us, we're, we're reachable there. Um, and we have, to your question about expansion, we have some pretty aggressive plans. Uh, I'm not going to telegraph our punches, but uh, <laughs> we, we think that we're well positioned to uh, uh, bring gig service in, into more areas in the U.S. And largely with our with our focus for the last 13 years, which is, you know, underserved uh, areas, uh, maybe maybe folks that don't even have a cable company as an option, uh, which has been our focus. But increasingly, we are competing with cable. We think the symmetrical capability of, of both our, our fiber and fixed wireless is something that people want. And uh, people are voting with their wallets. I mean, we're signing up people like crazy, and that's that's what we expect. So that, that's part of our underlying reason that we, we expect to expand to a lot of new markets in, in coming months and years. Well, great. And that's, that's fantastic because the, the bottom line is, are the people that need to get service getting service. And uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer in competition and allowing that competition to, to drive the marketplace. At, at, at the end of the day, you know, per, me personally having lived in, in rural area and 
not being able to use my internet service until 12 o'clock midnight and and then just being able to do email and and hoping that it and praying that it does go through um i think this is great not only what you guys are doing but what what the other folks are doing as well well we've come to the end of another empowering episode and we want to express our deepest gratitude to Corey and Gigfire um, for being with us today. And remember, to bridge the, di the digital gap lies within each one of us by championing digital inclusion, advocating for equal access, and embracing technology potential, we can create a world where everyone has a fair chance to thrive in the digital age. You can reach this podcast and other episodes Closing the Digital Divide at ctdd.castos.com or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. We look forward to sharing with you very soon.